The, mess oh, okay. the Messiah is coming, and he will bring eternal joy and peace, that our hope will be complete. This is what Israel longed to say as they waited for Christ to appear. On this fourth Lord's Day of Advent, we light the final purple candle to remind us of God's love for his people. Israel was always motivated by God's love, and through God's love for them, God promised them a seed, a redeemer, a Messiah, his son, Jesus the Christ. From Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. As we light all the candles around the wreath, this indicates that Israel's time of preparation was almost over. On this Lord's Day morning, we remember God's unmerited love that culminated in the birth of Jesus Christ. We are told of God's love for us in 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We no longer wait for the pinnacle of God's love. It is found in Jesus, but we now wait for its completion. God's final act of love will be the complete redemption of all his glory. There, Christ will reign forever on his throne and will establish his kingdom forever. There, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father forever. Thank, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thank, Thank you, God. God. <clears throat> Let's turn to Luke 2, to the passage that we read a few moments ago with the walkers. <clears throat> Last week, as we continued uh, our Advent series, our Christmas series, we looked at the supernatural aspects of the birth of Jesus Christ. The Son of God became flesh. And we saw that, that whether you were speaking of the angels, uh, whether you were speaking of the conception, that this event was saturated with the presence of the supernatural. We took that thought 
and said, it's not only just in the birth of the Son of God. It's not only in the incarnation. If If you go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, the supernatural is on every page of Scripture. It's not something that we encounter just as Christians. And we ask ourselves, have we encountered the supernatural? And we talk about, we talked about being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity invades our lives. We concluded by saying that in this secular age, this is not something that we must hide or we must, uh, or from which we must run. This must be set at the forefront. Look at the disciples in the book of Acts. What, what, what propelled them out into the world? It was Pentecost, the great coming of the Holy Spirit on the church of Jesus Christ, never to leave again. And we, we thought together and said, if the church was going to stand in this secular age, we must come back to the supernatural truth of our faith and hold to it and cling to it and pray that God will speak to the world around us through what has happened in our lives and what is happening in the church of Jesus Christ. This morning, message follows that message. It, it's, a, it's a natural next step. It's, a, it's a, a natural question that must be asked uh, if, if we're going to, to live out that of which we spoke last week. Has the incarnate Christ disturbed your life? Before we come to that subject, let's pray together and ask him to speak to us here this morning. Our Father, we bow before you that one time during the week when we're not just an individual priest or we're not just a family of priests, but we're a congregation, a church full of priests sitting here. Father, you have not only called us as prophets to take God's word out into Fayette County, to take God's word to the Memphis area, to take God's word to our families, to our neighbors. You've also called us to be priests, to come before you for Fayette County, for the Memphis region, for our own families, for our friends, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our Father, we bow before you this morning, and in your mighty power, we pray that you would bring comfort to Peggy Bauer. We pray that you would bring comfort to the Bauer family. Our Father, we pray this morning for Jim Bennington. Our Father, he's usually here, and we pray that even now, on this Lord's Day, he will know your presence, that he'll know, Father, the love of his fellow saints. Father, bless him with this and the power of your spirit. We pray for Priscilla Turner this morning. We pray for Janet Sarkel. We ask that you would bring healing to their lives. But most of all, we pray that 
Father, you would give them, give us all a confidence, a confidence, Father, in your good providence, a confidence that not a hair can fall from our heads apart from your will. A confidence that even on our worst days, we're bathed in your grace and always come with thanksgiving. Father, we pray that you would bring a calm and peace to their lives, to our lives, a peace that is beyond imagination. Now, as we open your word, only you can speak so that we are, Father, affected to the very core of our being. John Sartell cannot teach like that, cannot preach like that, but you can. And we pray in these next few minutes that we will hear your voice in our hearts and that we will leave here knowing that you have spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Has the incarnate Christ disturbed your life? Have you ever wanted something? Really wanted it? Sought someone? Desired to lay hold of a challenge? Only to find, only to find that that's something that you wanted, that someone you wanted, that challenge, when you got it, you discovered that you did not lay hold of it or him or her, but it laid hold of you. When I was in college, that happened to me with a brilliant professor, Dr. Graham Landry. He did his graduate work at Princeton. Now, I did not like going to classes. Never liked going to classes. I did like talking with my professors and benefiting from these one-on-one discussions. I became intent on taking a private study course under Dr. Landrum. The first semester of my senior year, I finally arrived. He allowed me to take a private study course for three hours credit. I was elated. That week, I ran into a graduate, a person that had already graduated. And in my excitement, I told him that I was taking a special course of study this semester under Graham Landry. He said, John, you have made the mistake of your lifetime. You have made a monster mistake. You have no idea what you have done. You have, he said, you hadn't laid hold of Graham Landry. He has laid hold of you and you will never forget it. My assigned area of study by Dr. Landrum was Marion Evans. Her pen name is George Elliott. Most of you have heard of her classic, Silas Marner. Some of you have waded through it. She also wrote Adam B. Middlemarch, Romola, all of which in that single semester I had to read, all of which were similar in length 
till Silas morning. I had to meet with Dr. Landrum every week to discuss Marian Evans. She had grown up as an evangelical Christian but deserted her faith and become what Benny would call a, a free thinker. She belonged to a humanist group called the Positivists. Every day I had to relate to Dr. Landrum how what I read spoke of what Marion Evans believed, spoke of her being a positivist. I had to talk to him about the influence of Auguste Comte, a Frenchman and a French positive, his influence on Marion Evans. Finally, at the end of the semester, I had to stand an oral examination before a visiting board of English professors that had been brought in just to meet with me to speak about it. On top of that, I had to write an immense paper on Marion Evans and the French positivists. I figured that I should have received somewhere from 15 to 30 hours of credit. Dr. Landrum seriously disrupted my life in the fall of 1965. I did not sign up for another private study course under him. That is very much like we are with Jesus Christ. We say we want to know him. We say we want to be close to him. We say we want to follow him. Would you say that about yourself? If I had been able to, to have a personal interview with each of you this morning before the service, would you have made a statement like that? Would you like to know Christ? Would you like to have a close relationship with him? I would answer yes. I think most of us would answer yes. I have a challenge for you. Try to find someone in Scripture who had such a relationship with God, who had such a relationship with Jesus Christ, whose life was not seriously disrupted by that relationship. Try to find that person who encountered Jesus and then or encountered God and their lives just went on as it was. Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Joseph, Aaron, Caleb, Samuel, Ruth, Naomi, David. In the New Testament, Elizabeth, Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist, Mary, Joseph, Peter, Matthew, Paul, Nicodemus, Joseph, Arimathea. All of their lives were seriously disrupted by the relationship with God by their relationship with Christ. This week, you try to find someone in Scripture whose life, they, they met God, they met Christ, they had a relationship with Him. Find someone whose life was not seriously disrupted. You can't find it. It's not there. Look at Joseph and Mary, the passage before us this morning. God came without warning. Mary was not praying for this to happen when we read of it in Luke chapter 1. Joseph was not praying for this to happen 
We read that in Matthew 1. They were happily engaged. Then God invaded. He was completely uninvited. It was that way with Abraham. It was that way with Moses, David, Samuel, Matthew. God did not make an appointment. He did not ask if they minded if he approached. I was reading a book by a well-known Christian author. You would know his name. I came to this sentence. Quote, God will never violate your space without being invited. End quote. I don't know what Bible he studied to find that God. I know it wasn't this one. I know that he was not speaking of the God of Abraham or Moses or David or Jeremiah, Joseph and Mary. God was not invited to any of their lives. He invaded. God was not invited to Joseph and Mary's life. He invaded. Many people view God as sort of a cleaning lady who shows up and asks if we would like our house clean. If we say yes, Jesus will come in like that cleaning lady with his broom and mop, rags and cleaners, and clean up our lives. That's not the gospel. God is like the God of this book. The Christ of this book is like an invading army coming to a fortress, coming to a fortress where there is out and out rebellion. We're born with sinful hearts. We're not born with hearts that shout out to God, that from infancy seek him, not unless that heart has been changed and evaded by him. You see, he comes. Read scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, he comes and he breaks down the resistance in our lives by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who created the universe and changes our hearts. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Here was this man who had tried to reform his own life. And he came to Jesus. He recognized he was something extraordinary. Only you can do these signs. Only a man from God can do these signs. You have to be from God. And he's standing there in all of his self-righteousness, dressed in self, his own self-righteousness. And what is Jesus telling Nicodemus? You need to be born again. Nicodemus understood the natural, the, 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 the radical nature of that statement. How can a can a man old like me enter into his mother's womb and be born? Rebirth is a radical thing. And Jesus then described a birth that was even more radical than our physical birth. Our, our physical birth. He conquers our rebellion with his spirit, with his word, with his holiness. He compels us with his love. Saying that we are in that we invited God into our lives is like saying the, the Germans invited the Allies to Normandy Beach. By the time we got around, if we're Christians, by the time we got around to speaking to God on friendly terms, it had already been conquered. Has the incarnate Christ disturbed your life? 
Well, he came without warning. I can tell you, he still does. You look at the passage and you see that he not only came without warning, he came on his terms. Mary or Joseph could not say, well, God, if we're going to have such a relationship, here's what we will do and here's what you will do. Here's what we will do and here's what we will not do. God just completely set the terms. Mary, you will be pregnant out of wedlock in a small town. Joseph, you will be engaged to a pregnant young lady and marry her. Even though you know the child is not yours. The two of you will make an arduous journey when you're eight months pregnant. South Bethlehem. And then you'll have to flee Bethlehem for your lives and go to Egypt. It will be several years before you return to Nazareth. Who set those terms for how they would serve him? God did. C.S. Lewis said it this way in his book on miracles. It's there on your scripture sheet. Look at it. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he has found us. So it's sort of a Rubicon. One does not cross. One goes across or not. But if one does, there's no manner of security against what will happen. It's a fearsome thing. To know that your father in heaven tomorrow can bring to your life in his great providence something that you've never anticipated. Are you not anticipating as you sit here today? But we ought to know that. Not only from scripture, but from our own experience to this point with him. Elizabeth Elliot thought God had called her to be a minister's wife. Thought God had called her to be a missionary's wife. And then her husband was murdered trying to take the gospel. You know this story. Trying to take the gospel to the Alka Indians in Ecuador. She was left behind with a baby girl. Then God called her to leave with her daughter to go to the very jungle where the Alka Indians live, to live in a hut in their primitive village, to love them, the very men and women who had killed her husband, to love them and take the gospel to them. And that's what she did. That was not her idea. Now, you hear that and you say, what? we all say this. John, I'm not Elizabeth Elliot. You're talking about a giant. I'm not Mary. I'm not Joe. You're talking about giants in the faith. I'm just a spiritual peon. You can't get away with that. You can't get away with it. Is there anyone? We saw it last week. Is there anyone of the faith? who was not invaded by the Holy Spirit of the living God, who was not born again by the Holy Spirit of the living God, who was not indwelled by the Holy Spirit of the living God, 
He doesn't say that happens just to the elite. It happens to all his people. Has he not called all of us to love our enemies? Oh, that's easy, isn't it? Has he not called all of us to love him above anyone or anything more than wife or husband, children, parents, money, job, success, self? Has he not called us just to sign the bottom? It's, it's, it's not filled in. Just to sign the bottom of the page. Just God hands a sheet of paper here. You sign this. Well, what, what am I signing? That's none of your concern. Just write your name there. That's what he does. Ask Joseph and Mary. Has he not called us to kill the addictions that enslave us? We use the word addiction. And what do we think? We think drugs. We think pornography. All of us are addicted to prejudice, to prejudgment. All of us are addicted to gossip, to anger, to lust. What kind of radical action does it take to do that? What did Jesus say? If your eye offends you, if your eye leads you astray, pluck out your eye. That's radical. If your hand leads you astray, cut it off. What if Mary were here this morning? What would she say? Talking about after that angel visited her and said, this is what's going to happen. How would she talk about going to see her own parents? Saying, you're never going to believe what happened. And they hear a story and say, you're right. We don't ever believe that. Can you imagine sitting down and telling her husband to be Joseph? Then that arduous trip to Bethlehem. Then hearing the son of her womb stand up before crowds and say that he's God. Mary, what was it like the first time that you bowed down to him? Not you loved him as your son, but you bowed down to him. As the Son of God after the resurrection. You imagine what it was like at Golgotha as this mother saw the Son of Promise nailed to a cross. Her life was profoundly. Seriously disturbed by her relationship with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to this conclusion. If this supernatural thing is true, if he is the gigantic Lord of heaven and earth, if he does hold the galaxies in his hands, 
If he's that huge, if this God comes without warning on his own terms, then it is an absolute truth that his, this relationship in our lives must disturb us. It's like dancing with a tornado. There's a phrase in the book The Hobbit written by J.R. Tolkien that every time I come to this subject, I think of this phrase. The Hobbit Bilbo Baggins with some dwarfs gone on a great journey to find, search out, and destroy this awful dragon called Smog. Smog is just an evil, bad, killing dragon. And they, they get more apprehensive as they get closer and closer to the mountain and the cave where Smog lives. And then Tolkien writes this, talking about how careful they became as they got near to the mountain. Smog was still to be reckoned with. It does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculation if you live near him. I love that. If you live near God, you can't ever take him out of your calculations and your plans. We say we live near to the Lord God Almighty. Yet do our lives, are our lives really disturbed by that? Until your life is disturbed, disturbed because you are a sinner in the presence of a holy God. Like Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6. Disturbed because he's God and you're not. Disturbed because it's all of grace and we can never be deserved. Disturbed because that means he owns you and you don't own him. Disturbed because he calls you to do what you don't think you can do, what you don't want to do. Disturbed because he died on a cross under God's righteous judgment and he calls you to follow him and come and die. Die to self, die to your will. The sad fact is that many will come here this Christmas Eve like we've come to church week in and week out. Well, that was nice. That was nice in church today. And we go out to a nice life. And we pray for a nice, smooth life because Jesus is being good to us. Find somebody in Scripture that lived a nice, smooth life because of their relationship. We say the words, but is it only theory? Is it only 
just Bible words, Sunday school words. You know, it's like a person who's never experienced a kiss. Do you remember the first time that you were really kissed? I'm not talking about your mama's kiss. All right. I'm talking about the first time you kissed. You know, you can talk about it in a theoretical way, in a strict scientific definition, or you can talk about the reality of it. Mark Buchanan described a kiss scientifically, theoretically. This is what he wrote. Two people press their moist, creased facial orifices together cinch tight the sphincter muscles to draw the flesh around the orifice into a bulb of a smell and exchange saliva and breath. Well, that really sounds appealing, doesn't it? It doesn't sound romantic, does it? It doesn't sound erotic. And when you read heard that, you said, I've got a better definition of a kiss than that. You know, the person who wrote that way about a kiss has never really experienced it, have they? That's the way many Christians are about describing the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus. You know, you know about the angel, Mary. You know, the incarnation, the supernatural conception. You know that in the beginning, God, you know all that. Maybe we do that and we've forgotten the reality of it. Maybe we really never have experienced it. We either need to pray this morning. God, I understand. For the first time I see myself a sinner, and I know you are a righteous God, and I know Christ has come and made my life. Oh, Father. We cry out to him. Or we do remember, and we do know that it's happened. And we say, oh, Father, forgive me for forgiving. You may hear this and you may say, I don't, want to, I don't want to know whether I want to experience what Mary experienced, Joseph experienced, what Abraham experienced, what Moses experienced. I don't want whether I, I want my life upset like that. Ah, listen. Whatever the disturbance is that comes from him in his great grace, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in his salvation, whatever disturbance comes, it brings a life like no other. Surely it disturbs. But once you have it, you won't trade it for all the silver or gold in the world. But I must tell you, 
I must tell you, if you don't, if you haven't, if he's not your Savior this morning, cry out to him. Because one day he will return. And he's going to disrupt and conquer. And it won't be with salvation and a cross. I pray that all of us in this room will be disturbed by our relationship to him in our lives in this Christmas of 2017. Our hymn is one which we sing about what we just heard. But before we sing it, we're going to sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Before we do that, we're going to stand and we're going to confess our faith as people who have experienced it. Stand with me and let's confess our faith. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence it shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.